0: If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in and enjoy. Today on Horse Chats, we've got Sarah Schloty. Sarah's been here before. She's talked about therapists. Assisted horsemanship, which is quite unique. I don't think anyone else is using that term. She is actually a psychotherapist and she started to within her work work with horses, uh, work with people, her clients and horses, and you know just bring in that equine facilitation. But within that, she's then found that horse people themselves have undergone quite a lot of trauma and this is where she started to talk about the therapist assisted horsemanship. And we're going to go into a lot more detailed today about it, talking about trauma-informed principles for horse professionals. I'd just like to remind you, though, about the mission of International Horse College. At International Horse College, the mission is to improve the welfare of horses around the world through the safe education of their riders, handlers and trainers. Have a look now at the wide variety of equine courses at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation, 31352. Now, Sarah, how are you going today?
1: I'm doing well, Glenis. How are you doing this evening or this morning rather? On yes, your end? yes. Now, Sarah, this <laughs> whole
0: idea of therapist assisted horsemanship, I've asked you back to talk about this and trauma-informed principles for horse professionals. Because it's such an important subject. Um, People that are listening to the podcast obviously have, you know, the interest in horses, and many horse professionals are listeners of our chats, you know, horse chats. And I think this is just absolutely invaluable information for them. But tell us a little bit more about how you got into this and why you've chosen to go through the trauma-informed principles within our chat today.
1: Sure. Um, I'd like to back it up by talking a little bit about how, um, as not so much an outsider, but as a non-horse trainer, as a a human who has horses and um, who has done a fair amount of training on understanding mammals and mammalian psychophysiology and ethology and um, who tends to be quite a bit of an academic nerd in terms of reading all about sort of trauma neuroscience and equitation science and so on. I come in sort of with a bit of an interesting lens, which is as therapists, as counselors, as various human helpers, there is an expectation in our field that as helpers of some kind, we are supposed to do our own therapy right get our own work done deal with our unresolved stuff because that if you are helping another human with those pieces that stuff that we have that we all have I mean none of us gets through life without it you know we we don't come and we don't grow up and become adults with a blank slate you know we all have stuff and If we're not taking care of that stuff, if we're not using um, ourselves safely and effectively as tools, as I like to affectionately say, we are the tools. Um, We, you know, we we are the ones who are providing the work um, for other people to heal, uh, and we're supporting people to find that healing within themselves. If we haven't done our own work, our stuff can bleed into or contaminate or affect the client's process. And there are actually a lot of ethical obligations that we have and very stringent requirements as helping professionals to make sure that we are practicing what we call the safe and effective use of self. And what I find really interesting is when I look at the horsemanship industry, whether you are a horse professional, such as somebody who's an equestrian and does this as a career, or you're a riding coach, or you're a horse trainer, or you're an equine behavior consultant, I find that because it's a wide industry that doesn't have formal legislated Regulations. There's no formal licensing board. There are, you know, voluntary professional associations, but there's no formal rules, governmental sanctioned rules around the performance of these industries or these professions. There's no obligation for these individuals who are doing horse profession of some kind to have done their own work. And what's really fascinating is, as a therapist. My lens is when I see horse trainers working with humans, with other horses or hear stories, I'm always really curious about what is going on for the horse professional that is either impacting the horse or the student or client or both together. And how is that playing out and creating situations that are potentially problematic and that are Potentially, even causing harm, whether emotional or physical harm, as a result of the horse professionals' unresolved quote unquote stuff. And there's been some interesting research done, not a lot. I can really think of one study offhand right now where they looked at the attachment styles of people who had selected various different types of approaches to training horses and they actually found that there are particular attachment styles that lead people to be more likely to pick a particular basically horse training method our attachment styles which is our way of relating or finding security or not security in interpersonal relationships comes from our early history i mean we don't come into the world with clean attachment style you know and we're, we are supposed to come into the world and ideally our caregivers will provide the right conditions for us to develop in a healthy way and when that doesn't happen it comes to having different types of attachment patterns and if our unresolved attachment patterns lead us to pick an attachment or a training style that can potentially have problems um, for the rider, the student, client, et cetera, and the horse, and what expectation is there for the horse professionals to be working on, quote-unquote, again, their unresolved stuff? Mm. And and it's like that leap has not been made yet. And it, at least it's, I know a number of horse professionals who have been, but mm-hmm. it's not yes. still, like, it's not an industry requirement, so to speak.
0: Yes, yes, I think the whole entry requirement for the whole industry. yes. Yeah. Goes across the board, yeah. I think that could be um, certainly yeah. tightened up a bit. And, you know, I mean, we think about that, our aims of just safety around horses and equine welfare. And I think if there was more regulation, I think both of those would be um, certainly well and truly improved. But thinking about these principles, I know that safety, we've got the first one is safety. Tell us a little bit more about the type of safety you're talking about and um, yeah. Yeah, what, what should be done.
1: Yeah, so safety is such an important trauma informed principle, but not in the way horse people might think. So um there are all these safety rules that we all have to follow that we've all mostly learned, you know, to varying degrees, like don't stand behind a horse, don't wrap the lead rope around your hand. You know, mm, there's all mm, these things, yes, right? Yes. And and there's not that's not wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a good reason why those principles or those safety quote unquote rules have been developed. The difficulty that I find is that um, what ends up can, what can end up happening, the pitfall for that is people will rely on a safety rule yep. in order to create safety and not actually look at what's going on in the horse-human relationship. And then the misattunements that can happen where we misread horse or we're not even looking at our own emotional dysregulation, our emotional stuff, our nervous system patterns. And if we're not looking at those things and how how we show up in the world, how that influences or affects the horse's behavior, um, then what ends up happening is a self-fulfilling prophecy where I work off the safety rules, but I don't deal with my own stuff. The horse has a reaction. It confirms my belief that horses are dangerous animals that require safety rules. And then we continue this cycle. <laughs> and, and it's so fascinating to me because I go, well, why, are, why is not one of the safety rules, hey, deal with your crap? <laughs> you yes, yes, like Why is one of the safety rules not, hey, by the way, before you arrive at the barn, it's not just don't stand behind the horse or don't wrap lead rope around your hand, but what are you doing? to cultivate a felt sense of safety for both you and the horse. Like safety isn't just city rules. There's a felt sense of safety. Is the horse feeling safe with you? What's its nervous system like when it's with you? What's your nervous system like when you show up? Mm-hmm. If you're dysregulated, if you're you know, in your head and you're upset about something or you're you're a little loud or you're a little all over the map and you're frustrated and you're being punitive, does the horse feel safe with you? If the horse doesn't feel safe with you, then, th- you know, there's going to be a particular set of behaviors that emanate from the horse not feeling safe, which again, like I said, creates a self-fulfilling prophecy around, oh, seahorses are dangerous, you know? Mm, yes, And I go, yes. well, are are they? <laughs> or are they actually just responding off of the cues and the environment and the relational cues Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and you know can horses be a lot safer and so when I talk about safety it's not just safety rules and I'm not trying to dismiss safety rules I'm sure all the there's gonna be a lot of people up in arms going insurance and Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. safety norms and I go yes there's a place for that but if we only apply that at the expense of everything else, there's actually a greater risk of harm. And I see it all the time. I see people at, you know, various barns, various horse people who apply safety rules to the letter. And yet there are risks of injury and all these things happening. And I go, how much of that is because the conditions are not being set? Mm-hmm. How much of that is the human not looking at their stuff?
0: Yeah.
1: And yeah. how it influences the horse, the horse's behavior, right? We tend to think of horses as being these like, you know, these big animals that are meant to be obedient and, you know, that have all these things that we expect them to do. We expect them to basically be ready to be ridden and do all these things. Horses have their own agendas. I mean, horses have their own needs and their own desires and their own stuff. I mean, we come in and impose things on them and then get pissed off when they get, you know, they, they react in a funny way. And it's like, well, you know, that might lead us to another one of our principles, which is, you know, choice and voice right mm, mm. and i think those are further down the list yeah,
0: yeah yeah well i'm thinking about the consent as well you know can you talk to us yeah. about about the consent principle because i think that's um yeah that's quite important yeah yeah we'll talk about choice and voice after that but we'll certainly get to that yeah the consent cool. i think yeah
1: sure so so consent kind of i mean all these for me are the the distinctions between them in some ways are kind of arbitrary Because I mean, safety safety involves consent and choice and voice, right? Like all these things kind of bleed into each other. Mm -hmm. They're not so distinct. But if I were to split them out, consent is really that place around, okay, like where's the agency? For the human client and for the horse, in what I'm trying to provide them, as in, have I checked in with them? How are they feeling right now? Are they just going along with what I say because they've learned to, in their own traumatic experiences, follow the leader, guru culture, you know, be a good boy, good girl, good individual, good child, you know, whatever your gender identification is. Like a lot of people in their own trauma experiences have learned to comply with authority. Right, because they've learned that, you know, if I comply with authority, then maybe I'll get the love I've always wanted. If I just perform to a certain degree or a certain level, I'll get, you know, I'll finally feel like I have value. And and so we've got, you know, the riders trauma, for instance, that can affect what happens. And so if you've got a rider showing up and they are hell bent on doing everything right and performing in order to get moms and dads or parents love. And because, hey, I did this really well, look at what I've done, and I wanna look for the coach's approval. And a coach comes from a background where, hey, it's all about being the authority, right? And the coach is raised with that kind of history, then we can get into situations where coaches and, and students or clients or whatever you wanna call them start to override and then we end up with a situation where the rider might be really anxious or really nervous and then the horse is reacting off the rider and then the coach gets annoyed and what do some coaches say? You know, don't let the horse win. They're just testing you. Hit it harder. You know, make it do what you're asking and not all coaches and horse professionals are like this, of course. There's obviously a number of people who are not going to meet this description. So I'm not trying to put everyone in the same category. So I'm not by any, for a moment, assuming all horse professionals have unresolved issues that you know affect their work, I'm speaking to those who do. Mm-hmm. And I'm speaking to the fact that we all have stuff. and even the best intended individuals will have moments where they slip up and their stuff comes forward. I mean, even us as therapists, those of us who've done years upon years of therapy, will still have moments where something called countertransference comes up. Countertransference is our reaction to the client's response. And if we don't deal with our response to the client's response and make sure that that response is actually going to be helpful and not harmful, we can actually lose our license to practice if there's a complaint or there's some sort of ethical investigation, right? And so, so for coaches, this idea of consent is, hey, like where or, or any kind of horse professional, it's, like, hey, the horse... Is the horse actually willing to be here today? Is the horse willing to show up or is it being coerced? Is it shut down? If the horse is shut down going into the experience, that might create more safety issues because the horse is shut down or the horse is reactive. And then if the human professional is not dealing with their own frustrations around when an animal says no or someone else says no and they're not able to perform and get the client and the horse to be where they need to be and the human professional, the horse professional rather, starts going into their own stuff around performance and needing to perform and needing the student and the horse to be at a certain level and they go into their own stuff. Around worthlessness, you can just start to see where escalating behaviors start to happen, and where you start to see abuse occur, is when all this unresolved stuff comes to the fore. And so, consent—a lot of that is around, hey, where are we at today? It's not for the horse professional to be a therapist. That's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm asking horse professionals to be human, yes, right, and yes. to own own their stuff, and to check in with themselves and model. For the human, at the very minimum, model through their own awareness and their own regulation, their own ability to own their stuff and be vulnerable with students and say, hey, you know what, how are you doing today? Are you feeling ready for this? How are you coming in? Are you feeling, you know, a little energized? Are you feeling anxious? Like, what's going on? Because if we don't sort of look at that first then we might not get very far the horse might end up having difficulties and you know, and the human the horse professional can also model that and say, you know, I remember having times where I felt myself really anxious and I and I pushed myself too far. And I ended up doing things I regretted, you know, and mm, mm. created situations that were really unsafe. Like when the more a horse professional can own their part in an experience or show vulnerability, that actually goes a long way to de escalating a lot of the unspoken expectations and anxieties and pressures and shame performance stuff and, and 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 just those little moments of humanity which we slowly go hey how are you doing where are you at right now like are you feeling up for this lesson like do we need to take a moment just to kind of just spend some time getting the horse tacked up or even just spending some time on the ground being with the horse without even backing up like what's the horse's response to how we both are today Mm -hmm. right like it's letting go of the task right letting the task and the goal to focus on where things are at right now because if none of us are in the right nervous system state the goal itself that you're trying to get to is going to be even harder to reach okay so we want to set up for success
0: Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. yeah yes Mm -hmm. yes yes so we've got the consent and you've talked about us willing to be here the the choice and the voice You know, how are those, because I know you've said consent, choice, voice, you know, they do link with each other, but can you talk to us about the linking of the choice and the voice?
1: Yeah. So choice and voice and consent are really highly attached to each Mm. other. So the choice is, hey, can I voice an opinion here? Can I make a decision? Do I have the space to be able to say, express a preference? And the choice is, shows up through the voice. Like, am I actually listening or allowing the other whether the other is another human or an animal, right, to actually hear what they're communicating to me, right? So often, and we live in a modern society where, unfortunately, that's kind of a lost art. We've lost the ability to read body language really well. We kind of work off of, you know, what people are saying with their words, but not what they're saying with their bodies and their facial expression and their gestures and posture. And while there are some people who will read horse body language, I don't know that it's always done or it's done with a certain degree of nuance. And there are, um, there's so much more going on in terms of hearing the voice of the horse or hearing the voice of the student or client that you're working with Mm -hmm. in terms of, hey, like, and if you're not looking at that spin yourself, it's really tough to really pick up on some of the subtleties in the other, regardless of what species the other happens to be. You know, and so often our own blind spots affect what we see or not see or hear or not hear. So if I'm not hearing uh, my own self, my own stuff, it's really hard to be able to accurately detect if a horse is, you know, in. Is it the horse willing to be here? Is it just complying or appeasing? Is it obeying or going along with because it knows that that's what's expected, and so it knows to do what it's supposed to do because or else? Like, you know, what is the horse's voice in this? And what ends up being really interesting for people who are horse professionals, um, a number of people I hear when I talk about these topics and I'm certainly not the only one. I have a number of horse professional colleagues who also speak about these things. It's becoming more um, more visible, although still not the norm, is people say, well, gosh, if I give the horse choice and a voice and I look for the horse's consent, we're never going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, 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 and that's a really interesting, like, what does that say? <laughs> you know, what does that say if you offer choice and voice and consent to um, an, a horse and it offers a no yeah. on a particular day. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what does that mean for your entire industry, right? What does that mean for like what you're trying to do as a profession? And I'm not saying that we should suddenly like dismantle absolutely everything, but it certainly puts into question, okay, how are we doing this? And if I'm not offering or listening for the voice of the animal, the voice of the student, if I'm not... Paying attention to those things, I'm not offering choice within again reason, um, and I'm not looking for consent. Then, how am I practicing and what do I have to deny? in terms of information, in order to keep doing what I'm doing. There's something called cognitive dissonance, where when we're presented with information goes to the contrary of our own beliefs about ourselves, about what we're doing. Um, Cognitive dissonance is this discomfort, this discrepancy between what I'm hearing and what I do or believe about myself. And some people, the discrepancy is so great like the the gap between what's being said and what they hold to be true within themselves is so large that they double down on their position, just dismiss the new information. And I really hold that with a lot of gentleness and appreciation for how we defend ourselves uh, and protect ourselves from feeling things like guilt or shame or discomfort, because if you are not willing to accept or consider or entertain the idea that choice, voice, and um, consent are important, then what is the belief that you're willing to live with about what you're doing? Yes. And that's a really uncomfortable place to be because it really means challenging your lens and challenging your perception and your understanding of what is my relationship with horses? What is my relationship with the student? Is, are they there to serve me on some level? right? Do I look to them to make me feel better? Do I look to their performances to make me feel worthwhile as a human being, right? Where I'm now utilizing the student or the client and the horse to shore up something within myself that I really need to work on. It's the same with human therapists, right? As human therapists, we cannot offer therapy or counseling to meet our own needs. And it really has to be client-centered, And in the field of equine-assisted therapy, if I kind of jump ship for a moment, the same holds true there as well. There are many approaches to equine-assisted whatever you want to call it. There's so many versions that are about supporting the human client, but the horse's voice does not happen to be into the equation. It's about getting the human to have an experience and it seems to be at the horse's expense. Now, again, not all models are like this. I don't want to, again, paint everything with the same broad brushstroke. But it's the same with horse training. It's like, oh... As a horse trainer, what is my expectation here of this interaction? What happens if it doesn't go to plan, or the horse offers a no, or the horse is disembobulated and feeling unsafe with me, or the client, or student? And what would it mean to me to scale it back to create the conditions for something better to emerge? You know, and is that what does that mean for me to actually change course? What does that mean for me in terms of having to look at myself as a powerful? Part of the equation, you know. And does that mean slowing down? Does that mean that it might take longer to get to my goal? What does that mean for my awards and my ability to talk about my my prodigies and my students mm, and my mm, you know mm. like you know like what is what is that about you know? In really a deconstructing a horse professional's perspective of the work and what they are personally getting out of it, if anything. And usually this is unconscious. I'm not saying this to malign anyone. Mm. I'm not saying to induce shame or guilt, but really just to have a really honest conversation around, hey, like what are you carrying within you that unconsciously influences word being with your clients, students, and horses? Um, because it often has more of an impact than people think.
0: Yeah. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot off-the-press notification. That is that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available and the best news is that it's a free download so if you work in the horse industry if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career with over 100 jobs to choose from you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid so simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 Careers in the Horse Industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. I'm just thinking, you know, because we've got empowerment as one of the trauma-informed mm-hmm. principles, how does the empowerment, you know, we're thinking about the consent choice voice and there's a lot of questions here to ask. You know, you've posed a lot of questions It's not to ask horse professionals. It's for horse professionals to ask themselves these questions about themselves, the students, their horses, but the empowerment. Tell us a little bit about that and how that comes in.
1: Yeah. And again, this is where these all bleed into each other. So really? empowerment is, is, is again, that sense of agency, but not just agency as in, okay, I'm going to allow you to have a choice or a voice, but I'm just going to, it's loop service, right? Okay. I'm going to hear what you're saying, but you know, um, it's really that empowerment to say, okay, in this moment right now, what are you noticing? What are you feeling? What is happening in your body? Like what is going on for you and what do we need to do To slow this down, to resolve what's happening, it's like empowering, for instance, the student or the the writer or whatever language fits what you're doing, um, like supporting them to find their own voice and to do what they need to do to slow themselves down or to take a pause as opposed to making the locus of control, as we call it in therapy land, you know, the locus of control on the outside. So. What I mean by that is this, often with trauma uh, and various types of early adversity that if you don't ascribe to the word trauma, that's totally cool. It's okay. You know, Some people go, well, I didn't have trauma. I wasn't sexually abused. I didn't have any car accidents when I was three. You know, and people have this really bizarre definition of what trauma means yep. and it's quite limited. And so I have a much broader definition of what constitutes trauma. So if that word doesn't fit for you or it brings up discomfort for you, whatever early adversities have shaped you, right? with that, if that word is a little bit less connotative, we'll go with that. But this idea of a lot of early experiences that we've had in the world often have taught us that we don't have an internal locus of control, which means I don't have a voice. I don't have the ability to affect change in my own world. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't change. Uh, When we're small, it is absolutely developmentally appropriate for our needs to be met on the outside because we're born relatively young and helpless with really immature nervous systems, right? We need caregivers to respond and to be consistent and to provide the right conditions for us to develop in healthy ways. When part of those conditions, which John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth talk about in attachment theory, are safe haven conditions. So we're back to the word safety again, right? What safety isn't just a bunch of safety rules, like you know, make sure the milk in the bottle is not too hot. Like that, those would be safety rules, right? But I'm talking about that felt sense of safety that when I'm with another being. I feel safe. And when I feel safe, my nervous system is calm and settled and engaged. And I can rely on the external caregivers and their regulation, their emotion regulation, their nervous system regulation, their attunement, their resonance with me, their responsiveness to my cries and my needs. I can trust that and settle into that. And so when we get enough of that external input that helps us to grow properly, then we grow properly and we learn to internalize those things. We learn to be able to give them to ourselves because we know what it's like to receive them. We have a template for it. With a lot of early adversity, when this process goes awry, we kind of perpetually seek the thing on the outside of us. And for some people, it's really obvious. It's like addictions, right, or something, right, where we're continually seeking on the outside of us the thing that's missing inside because we didn't receive it, whether that's belonging or a sense of safety or a sense of attunement or a sense of deep connection with another and feeling met and heard and valued and loved. And when Mm -hmm. we don't get that stuff, the consistency, the reliability, the security in relationship, the co-regulation, as we sometimes call it, when we don't receive that, it's like we're perpetually looking for it and seeking it outside of ourselves. And some people, it's addiction; other people, it's being super deeper. I know because I'm I'm a recovering old functioner. Right? Mm-hmm. That's my okay. version, yeah. you know, of that, right? and and uh, placing a lot of performance pressure on myself. I've gotten way better at not doing that. Um, but I had to really check those patterns and what happens in my body around this drive to continually seek for something outside of myself to make me feel worthwhile, better, calmer, et cetera. And that would be that difference between internal locus of control and external. So if I come back around to empowerment and agency, choice, voice, all these things. Empowerment is that idea of, hey, how am I supporting the rider to recognize what's coming up in themselves, to bet more accurately read what's going on for them, what's accurately reading what's going on for the horse, and making decisions based on their internal state as opposed to looking chronically to the coach or the professional on the outside to tell them what to do. And I'm not saying that the coach does not have a role, right? Obviously, the coach is there because they have expertise. They know how to teach certain things to the rider and the horse and so on. But the empowerment comes from on the inside going, hey, I hear what you're saying. I know you're asking this of me right now. But right now, what I'm noticing as you say that is I'm feeling a lot of tightness in my chest and my gut is churning. And as I feel my tightness in my chest and my gut churning, I'm feeling the horse tense up under my legs. And I think I need to take a moment to just pause and just settle before we try the thing you've asked me to try and allow time for the horse to settle too, so that we can both be in a learning frame of mind. So we're no longer activated. So we can actually do the thing that you're suggesting so we can test it out and be more successful. That's empowerment. That's very different.
0: Yeah. 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 When you were talking about empowerment, there was a little bit of trust there. Are we grouping the empowerment and trust together or...
1: Yeah, we can. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Please. Yeah.
1: So trust is another one. This is why like I always laugh again, trauma informed principles, they all bleed into each other. They yes. all they're not so distinct as you're seeing, right? And so trust is another piece, is can I trust myself? To accurately read what my body is telling me, what my feelings are saying, what I need in this moment, what's going on for the horse, and not override in order to go along with what somebody else is saying, even if they're a perceived authority. I've fallen into that trap before. Trusting myself to trusting my voice, trusting my sense of my own nervous system, what's going on for the horse, not to question the other's expertise, but that in this moment right now, I as the client or the student also have expertise in who I am. And we do that with clients all the time. As a therapist, I might have really great roadmaps. As a therapist, I might work really hard on accurate attunement with the client so so I can really read them well. But the client ultimately is the expert on themselves. And and so we're co-learning this together, whereas I have a certain amount of expertise, but the client also gets to be an expert in who they are. And together we're going to grow. And so the trust is, can I trust myself to have a voice? Can I trust that I will be heard by my coach or my trainer or whoever and that that will be received and it will be taken seriously? And that contributes to safety. That contributes to feeling calmer, to feeling more settled, you know, and creating the conditions that will allow more success in what we're trying to do and reduce likelihood of unnecessary escalation and use of force or abuse in Mm -hmm. order to get the job done okay yeah and then they create trust for the horse too does the horse trust that it's going to be heard right or the horse apprehensive that every time it meets that particular human it's going to be misattuned to not heard not have a voice and it just learns that around particular people it has to okay
0: so thinking about the horse the coach the rider the trust that's yeah developed is that where the collaboration comes in then
1: yeah, yeah, okay. I kind of used okay. the word co-create just a few moments okay. ago and that's yep. exactly yep. what I'm referring yep. to. Yeah, they yeah. they
0: you're running them very much, you know, I mean generally you talk about safety and yes you do talk about safety rules and you but you've gone deeper yeah. than that and you've gone the deeper yeah. and, and you've worked your way down so it's just a logical as you said they all bleed together but they're all bleeding and and mixing together. I like the way you've put this together, Sarah. I think um yeah. 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 So, yes, please talk to us about the collaboration.
1: So, yeah, and some people in the horsemanship world will talk about partnership, right? Yeah. And it's a word, yeah. a buzzword that I hear thrown around a lot, right? And mm-hmm. how do you achieve partnership between you and your horse, you know? And again, this is just fun for me as an outsider, not a horse trainer, but someone who has horses and has experienced trainers and has witnessed people receiving training of various kinds or horsemanship instruction of various kinds. And um, having done some different um, trainings, um you know, not to, I'm not calling myself a horse trainer, but I've done certain trainings that allow me to be able to work with my own horses. And so in a a weird way, I'm like a trainer for my two, you know, oddly, um, if you had to look at it that way, but I don't consider myself like that. Um, but the, this idea of collaboration is how are we co-creating this experience, you know, and, and partnership will come. It's not just, are you a leader for your horse? There's so much sort of misconception and myth around dominance in the horse industry. Uh, Lucy Reese wrote a really fabulous book called uh, Horses and Company that talks about equine ethology, which is, I think, an undervalued area. um, And really lovely little book. And the last few chapters talk about how the horsemanship industry has gotten, has misconstrued the word dominance and this idea of partnership is about leadership and all this kind of stuff and there's actually way more going on than just that and so I encourage you all to read her book it's a fabulous little read and she summarizes a lot of research and looks at the differences between horses in the wild uh, or feral horses and horses in captivity.
0: Just just say it again Sarah the name of the book and the author.
1: Yeah Lucy Reese uh, R.E. and she wrote a lovely little book a couple years ago called Horses in Company.
0: Mm -hmm. Wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: She's got a... uh on YouTube, she has a number of videos, and if you go to epona.tv, I know this is a bit controversial. I, I know there's some issues with, apparently, the videos that are on um, epona.tv, but if you check out epona.tv, there are some really fabulous videos from Lucy talking about equine ethology, and there are also some videos from Francesco Giorgio, who co-wrote a book called Equus Lost. Uh, which is another really fantastic book that I highly encourage you uh, listeners to pick up and take a look at. And it really speaks to this idea of um, misperceptions that we have of the horse. Uh, like I spoke about earlier, this idea that, you know, we believe horses are dangerous animals and so then we treat them in ways that reinforce our beliefs and that keeps the narrative going, right? And it's the same, um, Francesco talks about um, you know. We create a fight animal by treating it the way we are going to control what we think is a fight animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to use a quote from from Francesco, and so that, that to me does not speak to collaboration. That to me is about top-down, power-over, misconceptions, you know, believing that horses are flight animals. I mean, they're the only prey animal that is built like that that is called a flight animal. Gazelles are not called animals. You know, impala are not called flight animals. Deer are not called flight animals. You know, really only horses are, and they do a really lovely job of challenging our misperceptions of horses and how those misperceptions affect our ability to have collaboration, true collaboration. Um, and partnership And what would that look like differently? So this is something we talk about in my training programs. I know um, a friend, Francesco, talks about it in his work. I believe he has a program called Learning Animals, which is really looking at horses as cognitive creatures who can think and respond to their environments in ways that are way more nuanced than we give them credit for. Um, We talk about it from the standpoint of, I like to say, horses are somatic creatures. They have a nervous system and a body, and they are attachment-oriented creatures creatures, they're relational creatures. Ultimately, we're saying the same thing. Lucy Reese also talks about this stuff. They're colleagues of mine, Emily, Dr. Emily Keeson and uh, Katharina uh, Lundgren um, out of the Mimer Center in Sweden. They teach a really lovely course about this stuff as well. So uh, this idea of how can we have collaboration if our stuff prevents us from being able to be in collaboration, to truly be in connection with another. Yeah.
0: Compassion. How do we move on there and and use compassion as a uh, trauma-informed principles?
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. That's mm, so important. Mm. Um, this is about, and this is where some people will go, This is really, you know, floppy and a little too woo-woo. Um, but I really disagree. And there's been a lot of really interesting research about the importance of self-compassion both towards ourselves which also then allows us to have compassion for others if we were not extended compassion as little people if we were not shown grace and understanding and attunement and we were taught to suck it up get over it you know we were taught that affection and attention and you know all these things were not available or were conditional um we often can respond to things like compassion and or self-compassion with a lot of resistance um, and what we're talking about here is, you know, what some people call a trauma informed lens, which is it's not about what's wrong with you, it's about what's happened to you, right? So, compassion is this idea of how do I step back for a moment, not judge, not get caught up in my own internal reactions, but just go, okay, in this moment right now, what is happening inside of me, what's happening inside the student, what's going on for the horse that usually reflects two things one it's a protective response and it's serving to protect on some level or it reflects an unmet need and having compassion means can i recognize the protective responses and or the unmet needs that are showing up in the moment and and within them and also within myself can i have compassion for the fact that i pushed that student and that horse a little too hard today okay can I recognize that that was my stuff? Can I have compassion for myself, or do I go automatically into being super judgmental towards myself and go into my own shame and self-loathing, and then I just use that as a stick to beat myself with and to, you know, <laughs> direct that same kind of punitive energy to the client and the horse through the whip, for instance, right? Mm, mm, mm. So it's 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 interesting, right? So the compassion piece is it's not about woo-woo, it's not about letting people off the hook. Compassion people often get the a, a, It gets a bad reputation because people often mistake compassion for um, indulgence. Okay. Right? So people often go, oh, well, you know, you had a hard day or you've got trauma. And so I'm just going to tolerate behavior that probably isn't appropriate no that's not true either right it's not so polarized you know uh, compassion is about how do i in this moment pause slow things down inquire gently within myself about what's going on for me what's going on for the other can i hold that in a place of grace a place of compassion and often by holding that compassion it allows us to do something that we call practicing the pause it slows things down And it gets us out of the automatic default sort of, you know, settings that we are in auto-response about. And it kind of gives us a bit of distance to go, okay, what's going on here,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? What's Mm -hmm. what's happening in here? And there's a, a woman named Tara Brock who has a really lovely acronym called Rain. And um, we'll make sure that we have the link available for people. But basically, it's this really lovely little four-step process that people can do in order to support uh, more um, what some people call compassionate inquiry, both towards themselves and what's going on with the horses and their students and clients. It wasn't developed for that originally, of course, but I like to bring these kinds of tools in because they're very, very helpful. So RAIN basically stands for recognize, right? Recognize what's going on, right? It's like pause, recognize what's going on, allow things to be just as they are, right? Uh, Allow things to be just as they are. That would be the A in RAIN, right? And then we investigate. So investigate with gentle attention, which is going to deepen our understanding of what's going on, Right. It's like, okay, what's going on here? What is being protective? What is what's going on that's resulting in this as a protective response, or where's the unmet need? What's going on in terms of like what's being expressed? Where's the voice? Right? What's going on? Is the horse in pain? Is the student scared? You know, like what's what's happening? What's going on for me? You know, did I wake up on the wrong side of bed this morning? Did I have a partner argument with my partner and I'm pissed off and I'm gonna be super punitive and really, really heavy-handed today because that's how I feel a sense of power within myself when I feel helpless like this is where it's investigating with gentle attention nurturing is the self-compassion piece can I just hold compassion for the fact that this is happening right now pause and take a step back and then what she talks about also is after the rain right after the rain after we've kind of done these four steps is is sort of finding some space between me and my reaction and that space allows something different to emerge. It allows me to respond differently. It allows the student or client or rider, et cetera, to respond differently. And that space also allows the horse to respond differently because we're basically putting a pause on the dynamics that are playing out. We're putting a pause on the escalation to allow time for the de escalation to happen. So we all come back down into a state that is more conducive to the goals that we're trying to get to.
0: Yeah. We talked about professionals and I know you used another word and say well don't use the word trauma but not realizing that they could probably go through you know these steps but the trauma awareness how do we have people aware or how you know just tell us a little bit more about the whole trauma awareness and what we should do about it
1: Yeah. So trauma awareness is this piece around recognizing how ubiquitous trauma is in Mm -hmm. the world and broadening your definition of what constitutes trauma. Um, It also involves looking at how trauma shows up in us, in the people we work with, and in the horses that we are working with. Um, I like to say that I don't know too many horses that are in captivity, as in they've been domesticated and have been raised by in a human world. Um, I don't know too many horses that haven't been weaned too young. Mm-hmm. Right? Most horses that live in captive settings are weaned, what, around six months of age? Yep. Yep. Right? Yeah, right. In the wild, when they're left to their own devices and do it when they are ready to do it, horses will stay with their mums until well after their first year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they pick their families, they pick their bands, their you know, and we don't see the degree, Lucy Reese talks about this in her book, and I talk about it in my equosoma training, um, where we don't see the degree of conflict behaviors in wild or feral animals. Bands or herds that we do in captivity. And people start to see the horse as well. Horses are like this and horses have or issues and horses are dominant and they're just trying to be in charge or, you know, that's a bad horse or, you know, or horses are always about, you know, who's got the hierarchy. And when you take a moment to kind of pause and step back and go, wow, you know, in the wild, we, we see far less aggression in wild horses than there are in horses in captivity. And that's where you start to realize. It's like, oh, that's true for humans, too. That's true for lab animals. I mean, they've done so much cool research around the impact of early maternal deprivation in various species, horses, dogs, rats, cats, you know, chimps, humans. Mm. Early maternal deprivation, early separation from mum, from family, from herd. Right, or from pick, whoever the primary caregiver is, creates a higher risk for addictions, for aggression, for depression, for other issues in adulthood. And what I encourage people to look into a little bit more is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that looked at early adversity in humans and how that leads to behavior and health and relational problems in adulthood. And what I'm trying to do right now, I've got a book that is with a publisher at the moment um, that I'm very excited about where I'm summarizing all of this stuff. It's basically a trauma-informed perspective on horse-human interactions. Um, and hopefully that book will come out later this year. We're just wrapping up the manuscript, and I've got a few deadlines I need to address, but the book goes over the literature on looking at the parallels between trauma in humans, trauma in horses, and how we have very similar responses, and how when we start to realize that likely most horses in captivity have some form of early adversity, some form of trauma, some sort of or some form of experience of humans as being unsafe, misattuned, unable to be responsive in a way where the horse feels seen and heard and understood, where what the horse is communicating is actually being responded to and acknowledged. I mean, that creates a very different setup. Um, It's about paying attention to those things and adjusting our way of being and doing accordingly. It's so ubiquitous. Right? Trauma
0: shows up, as I like to say, in every room and in every round pen. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Now, the the whole, you know, we talked about people not being aware, but, you know, asking, and you gave a whole lot of questions to ask us as horse professionals, okay? Mm -hmm. But then how, you know, it's the continual asking, the self-regulation Talk to us a bit about the self-regulation, what we do there to make it so we can use these trauma-informed principles.
1: Cool. So I'm going to have two ways of answering that question. And Mm -hmm. because I want to be mindful of the time and how long we've been recording, and I know you like to have a certain amount of time, and people tend to tune out after a certain time, Mm -hmm. um, I will give an instrumental answer to that today. And perhaps as a follow-up chat, I will go into more practical ways and actual practices that people can do. Yes, that would be perfect. Um, And so, sure, let's let's, let's do that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So what I will say is this. So from a a principle standpoint, self-regulation is so crucial. And it's our ability to recognize when we have become no longer present, no longer regulated? And what are we doing to actually help our nervous systems be in a state that is much more conducive for the angle that we're aiming for? Um, and the more we are able to have our nervous system in a state that is more conducive to the angle that we're aiming for, the more likelihood we're going to have success and the less likelihood we're going to need to escalate and make use of excessive abuse and force to get the job done. And so self-regulation is refers to both a set of practices that we can do to help support ourselves to be more regulated less in fight or flight less in freeze or shutdown right and also refers to the organic state of the nervous system that is capable of self-regulating itself without a lot of you know conscious intervention so in my world where i come from i do um, a number of different therapies one of which is called somatic experiencing um, which is based on understanding the physiology or the psychophysiology of mammals, so this applies to horses as well as humans. Um, but within that model, it's there's there's voluntary self-regulation, right? Strategies mm-hmm. we do to help ourselves to settle, and then there's the involuntary self-regulation that occurs sort of more organically. The more capacity we have in our nervous system to be in a different way. And might seem a little more elusive, but perhaps next time, as when we get more into the practical of the how do we do this, the how to of that, um, that will become clearer.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, look Sarah, I'm I'm really, I know that, Um. you know, you always give us so much information and I'm really looking forward to the next chat, you know, how we can use these and go into the self-regulation and Great. go through that. I, I think, you know, anyone that's, Um. anyone that's listened here and has listened to your previous chat will say, this is really relevant for me as a horse professional. Yeah. So certainly looking forward to your next one. Um, But, Sarah, if people do want to contact you direct, what's the best way? They can find the details on Horse Chats. Just go to Horse Chats and um, search for Sarah. Okay. You've got Equisoma, So that's E-Q-U-U-S-O-M-A dot com. They can go to your direct website, although your direct website doesn't involve horses, but it it is about your work that you do, and that's Sarah Schlote. And it's it's S-A-R-A-H-S-C-H-L-O-T-E dot com. We will put the direct the, the proper links on and also um just Sarah.sloty on your Facebook page. Yes. We'll put all those links on horse chats just in case people miss them. Is that the best way to contact you through one of those um, areas?
1: Yeah. Okay. yeah, that would be one of the best ways. Some people do try to reach out to me through Facebook. I have um, two Facebook pages and a Facebook group that I manage. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. got a Equisoma Facebook page, Equisoma Facebook group, uh, and I also have a, a page separately for my private practice. Um, some people will try to contact me through there, and I try to discourage people from doing so mainly because if you're not already a contact of mine on Facebook, um, I tend, it's like sometimes those messages go to that sort of hidden folder Yes. and I don't always think to check there. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, I do try to make an effort to check in those thoughts, but I don't always manage to address that, um, in a timely manner. So I usually ask people, um, to email me. And so, Um, Or email my office manager. And so if you're looking for uh, direct contact, definitely contact through the websites. Um, There are contact forms there. If you don't hear back from us within a few days, please try again. Um, we do receive a high volume of emails and inquiries for trainings and personal support and consultation advice and um, from people around the world. So it's not that we're deliberately trying to ignore you. We're, we're just trying to contend with volumes.
0: So not a problem. Um,
1: So mm. please, yeah, please reach out those ways. Um, and uh, I do have a LinkedIn account. I will say this. It is a very underutilized LinkedIn <sighs> account. Um, I think the last time I, lo- I logged in was about two months ago. And before that, it had been about three years. So.
0: Okay, okay. We, we may not uh, need <laughs> not that one. Not the best place. Yeah. 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 yeah, we'll leave that out. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, Sarah, look, looking forward to catching up with you again. and um, yeah, Wonderful. Certainly, and you know, I love the time that you put in and I love the depth of information that you give us. I think very valuable. So thank you.
1: Fantastic. You're welcome. I look forward to the next one.
0: If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe.